Hey everybody, welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. John Mark Comer here on Good Friday. You may not listen to this on Good Friday, but we are recording for Good Friday, a day that followers of Jesus all over the world pause to go deep into the soul and reflect on Jesus and specifically on his death and his suffering to get in touch with the pain and suffering of death and disease in the world as a way to move forward to Easter and all that comes on the other side. And as an offering on Good Friday, um, I had just had a little idea. I'm sitting here with Tristan Collins, who along with her husband, John Collins, is the co-author of Why Emotions Matter. What's the subtitle, Tristan, to your book? Uh, Listening to the Signals of Your Body, Okay. Discover an Embodied Spirituality, and... Growing, that makes me feel growing better. Growing an emotional I, intelligence. That makes me not feel as bad that I could not remember the <laughs> oh, subtitle. Man. If you, the yeah. author, can't remember the subtitle, yeah. that makes me feel better. I Thank have you. read it. Happy to help. It's <laughs> wonderful. A lot of people in our church are reading it. John and Tristan are in our community. And uh, it's similar, I think, different, but similar to Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Yes. But a little bit more psychological and a little bit more theological, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. You're a therapist, Mm -hmm. and your husband, John, is the co-founder of Bible Project, and brilliant mind, kind of Bible nerd, you know, intellect kind of guy, and together you're just, you're so different. It reminds me, I mean, different personalities, but my wife and I are polar opposites. Yeah. And I I don't know if that's true, but my impression of you and John is polar opposites. Yes, versus thinker, definitely. Yes, 110%. I love both of you guys. <laughs> and, you. Um, you know, I think what inspired our conversation today was a few weeks ago, there was that article going around from the Harvard Business Review by um, Scott Barinto, The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. Yes. And when I read that, it put language to a lot of what I was feeling. I just was feeling, in particular, in the first few weeks, and still after kind of shelter in place and everything was shut down, this like um, jumble of emotions, you Mm -hmm. know, like first feeling was panic and just like all the anxiety and adrenaline just coursing through my body and my nervous system. But then I started to feel not just fear for the future and what if this is the next Great Depression and all that, but started to feel anger and sad Mm -hmm. and confused and my mind racing. And then I started to feel tired. I would go on runs and just feel like my body was heavy. And I was Mm -hmm. sleeping at night. I was working really hard, but I just started, my body started just to feel heavy. And then I think when he put the word grief to it, it was Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's so obvious. It was staring Mm -hmm. me in the face, but that's what I'm feeling is grief. And, you know, Barinto is a trauma specialist Mm -hmm. in L.A., many years' experience in that, in biohazard trauma and such as well. And you are a trauma specialist. And so Uh, you deal with trauma all day long. So I think I just had the idea, what if we just sat down in front of a microphone and had a relaxed conversation? You're the expert. Well, yeah, I was just talking to John. I don't think (laughs) – I definitely don't feel like an expert. And I feel like you can't really call yourself an expert in the area of of psychology or theology. Yes. Like We're all beginners. Yes, we're all learning. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. There is – I definitely feel that way about theology. Mm -hmm. But the reality is – Maybe expert's not the right word, but you deal with trauma all day long. And a part of your calling before God and your expertise is to help people navigate trauma and emotional pain and grief. There's some great stuff in your book Mm -hmm. um, where you deal with the major emotions and you deal with grief as a signal from your body and how you process that. And so I just thought, man, it would be fun to sit down and just pick your brain on trauma and on grief. So maybe to start off, how would you define trauma? Because I'm guessing a lot of people listening don't think of the last few weeks as a form of trauma. And it's interesting, Mm -hmm. this is such a different experience for different people. Yes. So some people are home alone right now and are extroverted but live in a studio apartment Mm -hmm. and are dying. Other people are with their family and are dying. Yes. Or I know some people that, you know, college kids came home, a dear friend of mine, his college kids came home and they can't go out and hang with friends and they are just loving like having their, (laughs) you know, kind of 20-something children all together under the same roof. And so it's a real sweet time for other people who are out of work right now or sick. Other people are doing just great. Work's not affected. So it's a different experience for everyone. But I think there is some kind of a collective or community-wide bare minimum grief. But is trauma the right word? So maybe just talk a little bit about how you define trauma. Yeah, I think it's helpful to define trauma as a painful event and that – 
we're all experiencing pain in different ways. Um, and I think it's helpful to even look at this uh, uh, this pandemic as a traumatic event. Hmm. Um, it affects us all differently, but I think it's very helpful um, because it, it gives us a language to identify why this is so shocking and, you know, completely disequilibrating. Yeah, why we feel messed up by it. Yes. And a lot of people might say, oh, this is not a big deal. But I think when we look back in history, yes. we'll look at this event in a similar way that we, that 9-11 was for yes. Americans. Yes. And, you know, with 9-11, most of us weren't even close to ground zero. Yes. Right? But the psychological... Most of us, unless if you're a New Yorker or whatever, did not yes. know somebody who was yes. killed in that tragedy. Yes. But it, the psychological impact of that event mm-hmm. affected everybody. <laughs> we think about it every time we now go to the airport yes. and have to take 45 minutes to get through security. Yeah. And so there was life before 9-11. Yes. And there's life after 9-11. Yes. It significantly shifted life flying, the flying experience for all of us. And a lot of people have said this, I mean, we don't know yet, but this is likely to be kind of a combination of 9-11 and 2008 put together because of the financial fallout for so many people. Yes. So I think it's helpful to look back in history to see that um, just how people coped with those events. Right. And and just to recognize that uh, this is, yeah... This is a worldwide trauma that everyone is experiencing, and we've never had anything like this. Would you explain maybe on that note, um, I know that psychologists talk about the difference between like big T trauma or capital T trauma and small T trauma. You know, early on, I think I'm a little allergic to the kind of victimization mentality mm-hmm. of millennials in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are genuine victims, but I think mm-hmm. there's a, a, a Yes. Not genuine kind of victim mentality yes. in the therapeutic mm-hmm. world that we grew up in. Uh-huh. And so I think a lot of us are like, uh, you know, like people throw that word around too much. But it was really helpful for me to kind of come into the, the paradigm of like capital T trauma and small. So would you yes. just unpack that really fast? Yeah, that um, came from the researcher Francine Shapiro. And so she described big T traumas as life-threatening events like natural disasters, unexpected death or abuse. Mm-hmm. And then small T traumas would be just painful events that everyone experiences, and they're not necessarily life-threatening. So um, capital T is like kind of outside of the ordinary experience. It's yes. like you're... Yes. Something li- that you're, people yeah. would easily identify. You're living in Dresden, Germany during World War II or in mm-hmm. London or yes. assault or the death of a parent at a young age or something yes. like that that's outside the kind of bell curve of the majority human experience. Yes. And the small T traumas is like just the pain and suffering of life. Yes. So it could be a job loss, relational conflict. Um, Yeah, just things that a lot of us... Could be divorce, right? Yes. Could be a broken relationship with a parent. Yeah. It could be losing your business in a pandemic or losing work for a time, right? That Definitely. And, you know, I've become really interested in it. I remember I was speaking for an event, and Miles Adcox was speaking at the same event with me. Do you know him? He's a therapist who's um, the head of Onsite oh, outside yes. of Nashville. Yes, uh-huh. It's like an intensive. I've actually had a friend go through it. It was a life-changing experience for him. And he had this line. He gave this talk on kind of trauma and spiritual formation, and he said, I have the quote here, most all pathology, self, which he defined as self-defeating, self-destructive, persistent, resistant to change behavior is rooted in emotional trauma. Mm. Yeah, or even relational trauma. Yes, and he wasn't using that as an excuse for sin, which is where Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people go with it Mm -hmm. at all. He was saying, like, you have to experience healing of that trauma in order to move forward. That sin isn't just about willpower. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, there's an element to that, but it's often about wounding. Yes. And so you need healing as mm-hmm. much as you need just to go do the right thing. Yes. Yeah, that trauma um, affects our body mm-hmm. and it affects our brain. And uh, one, of, one of the theories is that when we experience a traumatic event that our hippocampus kind of goes offline and that's the organizer of our brain. And so it doesn't um, take the present situation and file it into like, oh, this is, this is in the past. This is long-term or in the past, um, this trauma happened. And so when it doesn't file that, um, 
it can become post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. Okay. That's so. Is the hippocampus the part of your brain that makes like sense or makes meaning of it, or is it more that you're saying the organizer more yeah, like? Yeah, they call it the, the it administrator. Mm, yeah, like you go there. You go in the past. Yes. You go in this thing I've come through, but once it's yes. not there, then you just keep reliving the trauma over yes. and, and over. Yes, and some of us are over. able to. You know, our hippocampus organizes it for us. Yes. And so we don't develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, But for other of us, um, that part of our brain doesn't – gets flooded and overwhelmed, and Mm. so it doesn't organize it. And then we end up having all these symptoms um, from the past trauma – in our affecting our present life. Right. And is that where like the language, which of course is way overused in the West Coast, but of trigger comes from where you have some kind of an experience and it'll trigger that part of you, your body, your amygdala will react or is that different? Um, Yeah, I think people use it sometimes in a more for small T traumas Mm -hmm. and people can use it for big T traumas. Right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've you've done some great work around the importance of relationships in the healing of trauma. You want to maybe talk about that? Uh, well, I what I've noticed with working with clients who've experienced traumatic events, I've noticed that the suffering increases when our pain isn't acknowledged and we feel alone in our pain. Yeah, we were chatting last night on the phone about James Pennebreaker. Yeah. And I did look up that study, and I was right. It was James who did it. Okay. Who is uh, did a massive sociological study on trauma, and his thesis, go- and his question was, why do some people come out of a traumatic event and seem to make a full recovery at mm-hmm. an emotional level? They seem to like thrive as human beings, and other people just are kind of shattered by it. Yeah. And it's like they they walk with this limp forever, or don't get over it. Um, and his thesis when he went in was, or his hypothesis, was that it was traumas that have a social stigma, some kind of shame with them that you mm-hmm. don't recover from. So he specifically looked at sexual assault. And then he looked at, this was interesting, the suicide of a spousal member. So how you would feel if your spouse committed suicide mm-hmm. and the shame or the social stigma whether well-deserved or not at all, that would be attached to you, whether self-imposed or from other people. And so that was his hypothesis, was those kind of traumas you don't recover from. Whereas another trauma, like just the death of a spouse or a loved one or war or something like that, you have the potential to recover from. And basically looked at all of this data and found that his hypothesis was completely wrong. It was mm-hmm. just, there was no, there's literally almost no link between the two. But what he found in his conclusion was that the people that make almost a full recovery from trauma, and the stats were amazing were people that had a relational home mm-hmm. that people were able had someone or a family or a therapist or a pastor or a spouse or parents or just a community to process the the pain with mm-hmm. and then move forward and then i just read that great quote a couple of days ago from the psychotherapist robert stolaro who said trauma is where severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in I which it can that. be held I love that. Isn't that so good? Yes. So that's like what you're saying, right? You write about that in your book, and that's yes. your experience. That's kind of what you offer as a trauma therapist. You're kind of, at one level, that relational home for people. Yes. Yes, we are wounded in relationship, and we are healed in relationship. Mm, that's so well said. One thing about this pandemic is that everyone in the world is being affected. Right. And so that can bring a lot of comfort, and I've noticed it can also bring a lot of comparison. Hmm. So even though everyone's affected, our pain and challenges are unique to each individual. And some of us were already dealing with emotional pain before this event. And so this event has just completely overwhelmed us. It's just like too much. We can't handle it or it intensifies everything. Yes. And that's um, for other people who um, have past trauma, a new event like this that's traumatic can trigger the body into... It's old, just reactions to old trauma. Yes. Yeah. So I think this is really a time to try not to judge yourself or others and just to offer empathy. Yes. Yeah. I was chatting to a friend of mine um, who just took a pay cut and it triggered a bunch of stuff for her because when she was young, there was a a really sad experience with her family of origin where they lost their job Mm -hmm. and were, you know, really 
really poor for yeah. a number of years. And so she has that, you yes. know, that part of her that's like scared of not having enough. Oh, yeah. That's a great example. And so it just triggered. And she has plenty of money. She's totally fine. There's, she's not in financial trouble. Yes. But it triggered this whole like thing from being a little girl and walking for miles and relying on other people um, yes. to give them groceries and how hard and scary that was for her as a little girl. Yeah. And you know, so is that kind of what you're saying? Like yes. something like this at whatever mm-hmm. level can trigger or it could be the death of a loved one and now all of a sudden somebody you know is sick and they'll probably get better, but you have that, you carry that fear with you. Yes. Um, the trauma researcher, Bessel van der Kolk, okay. he wrote a book called The Body Remembers. Yes. Yes. And so our body does remember and it's it's wired to anticipate danger. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so quickly our body just thinks, okay, I remember this. I remember that this hurts. Yeah. So get away from this. Yes. And do so alert. this is what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's already anticipating our, you know, hearts racing and we are just, our body's remembering of what it was like when um, your friend was experiencing poverty and how right. stressful that was. Yeah. I mean, it's helpful for me. I think, you know, coming at this as a pastor and not as a therapist or scientist, I often um, over-spiritualize mm-hmm. emotion, you mm-hmm. know, and sometimes, or maybe not over-spiritualize, maybe moralize is the better word. Mm-hmm. I'll moralize emotion. Mm. And so I'll think anxiety is bad. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, don't fear, you know, which I'm 100% with. Yeah. Therefore, I'm sinning or whatever. But it's easy to forget that Jesus also created my body mm-hmm. and he designed my body with a nervous system. And my body has fallen, but... There are these emotions, and grief is one, and fear is another, that are signals from my body to yes. help me like stay alive and flourish and thrive. Yes. Now, often, you know, I think what Jesus is talking about, do not fear, is when the, when those signals become more than signals. They become, you know, narratives that play in our mind and shape our worldview, mm-hmm. and that's what we that we really. But there is a there is a part of our body that we have to really listen and pay attention to and honor yes. and even receive as a gift from God. But it's not very really fun. Yes. I do think that emotions get um, blamed for yeah. a lot of things. And I think it's better to look at emotions as information. And yes. what we do with that information can either be helpful or unhelpful. Right. And I think what we really need to question and um, look at is our thoughts. Yes. And so um, when we experience a traumatic event and we're experiencing pain, there's two things to be aware of um, when it comes to your thoughts. And this comes from this therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. And I've read a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So they talk about clean pain and dirty pain. So clean pain is when we feel, uh, it's how we feel when something hurtful happens to us. And so it's a direct result of injury. So that can sound like I feel stressed that I need to homeschool or, <laughs> you know, I can't, I, I'm overwhelmed that I lost my job. Right. So clean pain is just that reaction. Where dirty pain is created by our thoughts. Hmm. And so um, in the Christian world, we might say lies. Yeah. And those lies create unnecessary suffering. Hmm. And that's what we need to be aware of. So maybe, so, so dirty pain can sound like, you know, if I was Jennifer, my life would be easier. Right. Or I'm uh, never going to recover from this financial disaster. Yes. Or uh-huh. I'm going to lose my business. Or yes, catastrophic thinking, all or nothing thinking, um, cognitive behavioral therapy identifies you know, different thoughts just increase our suffering. Right. And so, so there's the event. That's mm-hmm. painful, but then there's the interpretation of the event in our mind. Yes. That's often far more painful, and it's the interpretation that is like the ongoing pain. Yes, right? definitely. Yeah, and that it just increases unnecessary suffering for yes. us. And we can, you know, also give dirty pain to other people. Yes. Right? They're already. Yeah, because then we spread our lies in the Christian yes. language, we spread our interpretation to the world, and mm-hmm. we bring that negativity or angst or fear. Yeah, so so someone's maybe already in pain. They're really struggling with past um, reactions from trauma. And then somebody says to them, well, just get over it. Yeah. That increases suffering. That increases suffering. Let me read to you. Um, this morning when I was getting ready, I had this quote come to mind from... 
David Tackle, and he has his book, The Truth About Lies. Have you read that, right? Yes. I feel like we emailed about that yes. months ago when I quoted from it in a sermon. I just want to read this quote. It's so good. Most of the pain that we can still feel years later from traumatic events comes not from the experience itself, but from the ways we have interpreted that experience. Yes. Beliefs that tell us terrible things about who we are, who God is, and what we can expect from life and others. Those lies, and he uses that language a lot, Mm -hmm. are the real source of bondage because we believe them deeply and live as if they were true. Our earlier experience becomes something of a container for the lie. That's an Mm -hmm. interesting way to think about memory. But the experience itself is no longer the main cause of the present pain and malformation. The lies we believe are the real sources of our distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so that's why I feel like, you know, when we emote, we, we sense that from somebody. And so we might blame that as the problem mm-hmm. instead of really trying to help people to identify what's the thought behind that. Yes. And oftentimes it's a thought that's increasing suffering. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's almost like more dangerous if you're more of a thinker, more intellectual, or almost if you're smarter, like you're in more trouble because we can give pseudo-rational mm-hmm. arguments yeah, for I think why we think all of us are rational. I mean, all of us like to rationalize things. Yes. Yes. Rather than just receiving the signal from our body and meeting the pain and sitting mm-hmm. in it with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where we also need other people in our lives. Yes. Because those lies can feel so true. Yes. And it isn't until somebody else speaks into that that we can start to loosen our grip on that lie yes. and say, oh yeah, maybe maybe that isn't true. It's back to that quote, trauma, you know, it's emotional pain that is yet to find a relational home yeah. to hold it. And what was the line you used again? Uh, our deepest wounds come from relationships. You said it just a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if this is a combination of things I've heard or who said this first, but we are wounded in relationship right? and we're also healed in relationship. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. At this point, we'll just receive it as public domain. <laughs> yes. Or we'll Har- quote you. I think you maybe Harville Hendricks said that. <laughs> um. It's true, regardless. <laughs> you know. So is that what I'm hearing you say is that as we're, I want to talk about grieving in a minute, but as, as we're processing this, we have to process this together. Yes. In relationship with community, followers of Jesus, family, whoever that is for you, a friend. Yes. We, we can't just go up into our mind because then the lies have this potential to colonize our imagination. Definitely. Yes, which I think brings us back to the grieving process. Right. And yeah. I want to talk about that because I want I want to get you talking about grieving. There's great stuff in your book about grieving. and Or I think, so one distinction that I think was helpful yes. that John and I talked about is that people use the word grief in replace of sadness right. or, in, you know, as a synonym for sadness, but there's also a grief process, mm-hmm. which includes lots of different feelings. More than just sadness. Correct. Anger, shock, um, you know, just uh, acceptance is in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, are you referring to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the five stages of grief? Do you want to just give us a short download on that? Okay. So she was a Swiss-American psychiatrist and she popularized the stage theory model of grief. Mm-hmm. And uh, she studied people and just made observations about uh, people who have been diagnosed with terminal illness. And so, you know, some I've heard some people say, you know, well, her her situation's different. Not everybody's dying. Right, we're not all dying. Yeah, yeah. But I was I was thinking about it that even though the experience of this pandemic is different, there's some similarities. In that, I think a lot of us remember getting the bad news. Um, that changes that changed our way of life. Oh yeah, I'll never forget. It was a th- Thursday at noon when I opened up my computer because I on Thursdays I write my sermons and so I'm not on my phone and I happened to check my text messages and there were like 129 or something and it was the morning after they'd canceled everything. Yeah. And I just I remember when I heard about 9/11. I remember where I was sitting, I remember where I was, yes. I remember the few hours after it. I remember yes. who I was with. And that was a long time ago and I feel like Thursday at noon, when oh, sitting yeah. in my on my chair, opening up my laptop, I feel like I'll remember that the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, I remember up, you know, the I think when school ended, I remember talking to a mom saying like, "Hey, see you next week," and she's like, <laughs> "Maybe not." And I'm thinking, really? I, I think we'll see each other next week. And yes. then 
No school. Everything's getting just canceled. Gone. And then it's two weeks and then it's yeah. six and now it's likely the rest of the year. And yeah. 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 So yeah. So that news is, yeah, I think going to be impressioned in all of our memories. Right. Yeah. And then the second one that I, that I saw is just that we're dealing with the stress of anticipating that things are going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's sometimes called anticipatory grief. Yes, he used that language in the article, and it, which is kind of like anxiety, right? But it's almost like you're mourning in advance. I think it's what a lot of doctors in the West Coast are feeling like right now, mm. you know, like anticipatory yes. grief. Yes, it definitely has the element of fear. Yes. Like you're preparing yourself that things are going to get worse. And that's what's so hard, I think, about, you know, the pandemic is... We just don't know what will happen. Yes. And it's going to be localized, so it'll be different in New York than it is in Portland, than it is in San Francisco, most likely. And yeah. so, you know, right now, at this point, we just don't know. You yes. Know, are we going to become New York and Italy? Are we not? Is New yes. York going to get better? Is it going to go on? Is it going to be a two-year-long Great Recession? Or yeah. will the economy come chugging back in June and July and all the businesses will make it through? And yeah. we just don't don't know. And that's so hard for us. It's so, oh, it's killing me. I'm yeah. like a control freak <laughs> who's trying to follow Jesus into healing and obsessive planner. And like planning right now is an exercise in comedy. Like mm. I just don't even know <laughs> yeah. what to do. Oh, I, definitely. It's like the whole future is just, I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, reflecting back on 9-11, I was thinking about after, um, you know, seeing the Twin Towers um, just crash, I was thinking about how I was... I remember thinking, like, you know, are bombs going to go off in the U.S.? Like, right. are we going to, like, is this going to go into, like, World War Three? No, I specifically remember. This was before I was more familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount teachings <laughs> and nonviolence. But I specifically remember after 9-11 going to a park with my two, these two guys I played in a band with. And I remember we're having a conversation about... Do we need to go to war? Yeah. Do we need to sign up? Yeah. Do you think they'd let us fight together? We might die together. We were yeah. like 19 at the time or whatever it was, you know? And But I remember that conversation. That's yeah. the anticipatory what's going to happen. Yes. And and no one wanted to fly because... Yes. I, and I remember the first flight I actually did go on, I was so hypervigilant, yes. anxious, like... You know, looking at anyone who like dropped their bag mm-hmm. or All the xenophobia stuff came up. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So this is this is difficult. This is this is difficult. Yeah. So you're saying it's I mean, we don't know what it will be, but it will likely be something like that. And that's the anticipatory grief. Now, talk to us about the five stages. OK, so the stages that she identifies or she observed, I should say. Right. Is denial, anger. Bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so denial can sound like in this pandemic, everyone's making too big deal with this. This is crazy. It's just the flu. Yes, it's just the flu. Or hey, this will be over in a few weeks. Or yeah. hey, we're gonna open everything back up. It's all good. Yes, it can also just be shock. Like, yeah, I just remember feeling for the first two weeks completely disoriented. Mm-hmm. Like I just felt like, is this real life? I just yes. kept thinking, is this? Real. Yes. And I still have that. I, I fancy myself a rational person, but man, first week or two, I, I was in denial. You know what yeah. I mean? I was like, everybody's overreacting. Yeah. And I have to have like the public kind of, but in private, <laughs> I was like, this is, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and because we're, realize, we don't even know how to take this in. Well, I don't it's know how to, so I have no experience shocking. with this. Yes. And yeah. something about it being on the other side of the world makes it feel far away yes. and, and not a threat. And, but then you start to realize, no, I'm not, I'm not living in reality. Oh, yeah. I went to New Seasons the other day, and I was completely thrown off by all the different things that they put into place. Yes. The dots that you need to stand on, the circles, and the screens that they put on the cashier register. Yes, in front of everything. Yeah. I did, too. It was funny. Last Wednesday night, it was like 9 o'clock at night, and I was driving home from work. We work late on Wednesdays because we come in and film our Sundays. And uh, I was driving home, and I wanted to stop and get filters for my Chemex because Amazon was like a month out. I was oh, like, yeah. can't do that. No new seasons have them. Yeah. And I stopped at new season, and they just put that into place. And you had to wait outside six feet apart, and there's all yes. these big signs. Yes, those big signs. And then it yeah. took me like an hour to get through. the. Ch- I mean, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my gosh, this like just got real. Yes. Yeah, and it's kind of similar to going through the airport. Our yeah. expectations are going to have to be changed. <laughs> now, like, buying milk and Chemex filters is like going through security. Yes. Oh. I had to leave my bags at the door. Yes. Yeah. Craziness. Yeah. 
So denial. Oh, yes. So stage denial, two. Uh, then anger. So that can sound like this is ridiculous. And then we can get into blaming that, mm-hmm. you know, it's this person or this organization's fault. Um, a lot of venting on social media right now. Yes. I've, even, I've read a number of kind of journalistic even things. And I have a lot of respect for journalists. But it, behind me at the scenes, I'm thinking, I think this is, a, this is anger. This yes. is a person who's lashing out at whoever, and there's so many different people to lash out at right now. Yes. And, and it's probably a, a wounded soul who's dealing with the grief, and they're definitely. feeling anger. At, yes. You know? So it comes out as this angry, mean op-ed, but it's, it's, I think it's grief. Oh, totally. Brene Brown talks about how anger is discharging pain. Ah, uh, that's really well said. Okay, so denial, anger, then... And then bargaining, and just bargaining sounds like, you know, if we only did this, right? then this wouldn't happen. You yeah, know? I think for me it was like, all right, let's just do it really, really good, like for two weeks, like yes. super, super good, stay at home, and then everything will go back to yes. normal, and we'll all be eating out. And, yes, uh-huh. You know, Life will go back to yeah, before, have, which Have church won't. again, yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's the bargaining thing. Yes. Okay, then what's next? Depression. So I've heard people say, you know, I feel sad, I can't stop crying. Um, it's the feeling of helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, people saying, you know, well, everyone's going to get this virus. Um, and I think it, the sadness is a lot more difficult for people to feel. Yeah. Um, I think especially for men mm-hmm. because it's not charged with adrenaline. Yeah. And, it's, and also just our culture doesn't really give men as much permission to yes. be sad. You said something last night that, some, that the two of the five basic emotions – Anger and fear speed up the body, yes. But sadness slows it down. Yeah, that was a really interesting insight, and that's very true. Like I get mm-hmm. revved up when yes. I'm mad or stressed out. Yeah, but when I'm sad, I just feel tired and heavy and slow in my thinking. And yeah, it, yeah. I think men in particular, all of us Americans in general, but men in particular, we just don't. I don't like that. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that even in myself with with arguments with John, yeah. that I would rather be mad than sad because it felt too vulnerable. Oh, wow, that's good. Okay, so denial, anger, bargaining, depression, or sadness. Yes, and then acceptance. Hmm. So acceptance can sound like you know, this is our reality. Yeah, we're here for a bit. We're at home for two months at least. You yes. Know? Mm-hmm. The economy yes. is in trouble. We don't know what's going to happen. Yes. Just coming, making peace with that. Yeah. So later in her life, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross noticed, noted that the stages are not linear and predict- in a predictable progression. Mm-hmm. It's not like stage one yes. is denial. Stage two is she made it more linear than it actually is just for sake of clarity. Yes. And she regretted doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, grief is just messy. I remember um, my wife came home from the therapist one day and she had this handout. And it was like really cheesy, like 80s kind of art. But it had one page. It was like magazine size. And it had one page that said, this is what you think grief is like. And it was like a straight line (laughs) with the five stages. And like this linear kind of, I'm going to progress through it and do it. Yes. And then the next page was like, this is what it's actually like. And it was this like bird's nest, crazy, like line all over the back plate, back and forth, up and down, like no rhyme or reason to it. And then it eventually kind of comes out to acceptance. That is so true, though. That is so true, huh? We think it's like, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to move through it. And and again, that's the Western, like, you know, progressive kind of linear way of mind to shake. Get it done. Which is great at a lot of things, but it's not great at grieving. Because mm-hmm. grieving is just so nonlinear. It hits you in waves. Unexpected yes. things trigger you. You're yelling at your kids, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is, I'm, I'm grieving and I'm lashing out at my poor kid right now. Or yes. it's just, kind of, it's in you, it's in your body. It doesn't make sense. It's hard. Yeah, it's exhausting. And so just feeling all the, you know, range of feelings is tiring. And so people feel irritable and, um, yeah, just riding those roller coaster emotions is a lot, and and people don't know how to respond so, to all the feelings. So talk to us about that. Like I could not agree more. You know, I was thinking this morning about Tim Keller's book on um, I think it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Yes, and I read it, and I adore Tim Keller. Um, I'm from a different theological paradigm, and so a couple of my I love his work. 
a couple of my sharpest disagreements would be over like the role of free will versus determinism. Mm-hmm. He's more on the determinist Calvinist side. Mm-hmm. And so obviously a, a determinist or a Calvinist comes at the problem of evil or theodicy from a, with a very different kind of perspective and answer than somebody who views has maybe a higher role of the Satan or of human freedom in evil and suffering in the world. Mm. Meaning you're more likely to get it's the will of God for your glory, for God's glory and your good, or mm. God's in control, or those kind of more. God has a plan, God has a reason. From or the Calvinist. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I don't want to get into that, the weeds of the theology. My point there is just I was expecting to really not like the book, even though I love Keller because mm-hmm. of that theological disagreement. But I loved the book. And mm-hmm. most of the book wasn't about a theology of suffering, which I think is his pastoral impulse and his wisdom and mm-hmm. genius. And the whole first part of the book is just about the five major worldviews and how each one of them deals with suffering. Hmm. And he makes the point, and it's very well researched, I mean, he's pretty hard to argue with, he's a genius, mm-hmm. that the Western, of all the worldviews, the Islamic worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview, the Buddhist worldview, that of all the worldviews on offer, this Western secular worldview is the least equipped to deal with suffering in any kind of productive way. Hmm. because it doesn't have meaning to life. It's evolutionary secularism, so everything's Hmm. blind chance. Therefore, the default meaning becomes, I just want to be happy. Mm -hmm. And suffering is at best an interruption to our happiness, Mm -hmm. especially if we define happiness as pleasure, as many more and more people do. At best, it's like, well, I can't be happy until this is all over and I'm back with my friends and I have mm-hmm. my job and I'm making money and I'm traveling again. Yeah. And at worst, if it's permanent damage, if you lose your business, if it's chronic illness, if it's death, then it's like a permanent blockage to your happiness. Yeah, you know? definitely. So the Western, it just doesn't have any, it doesn't have any meaning. And that's where actually the co-author with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross recently released uh, a follow-up book called, mm-hmm. I think he called it The Sixth Stage of Grief. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he said, because it wasn't a scientific paradigm. It was yeah. like an observational therapy. It was more art than science. Yeah. And he said the the six past acceptance is meaning, mm-hmm. which obviously I'm Victor Frankl. I'm thinking of his, you know, yes. Man's Search for Meeting. If you're not familiar with that, just brilliant. He was a therapist who lived through the Holocaust and yeah. watched all these people. And he studied in the concentration camp who made it through and he found it wasn't the people that were the strongest or the type A or the most tough or Mm -hmm. even the most religious. It was the people that had meaning for their suffering. If Mm -hmm. people could develop meaning, I'm suffering for a reason, Mm -hmm. it's doing this good in me, then they came through, you know? So anyway, all that to say, Western, I think, culture doesn't have meaning for suffering, unless if you're a follower of Jesus. And... And pleasure is the high point. And we're linear. We want to feel in control. That's mm-hmm. what I hate about grieving is I like I want to approach grieving like a task. Yeah. Like, okay, Tristan, tell me how to <laughs> grieve. I'm going to go do your three things. Yes. And there's, there's stuff we can do. I want to get there. But grieving isn't so much something that you do as much as it's something that you let be done to you, right? Yes. So talk yeah. to us about how to grieve as followers of Jesus who – maybe have a Western, a little bit of a handicap in that area. Yeah. Well, I think it was great that you gave the example of Victor Frankl because that was, you know, absolute horror what they went through. Way worse than anything we're facing. Yeah. And that he observed, he didn't deny what was happening. He entered in and he observed what was happening. And to be able to do that, um, yeah, you have to kind of enter into the pain. Right. And so the grieving process is acknowledging pain. And I think, Hmm. you know, Americans, we are conditioned and we don't like pain. We have lots of drugs and, you know, activities and and things. we're pretty good at insulating ourselves from it. The science and technology and wealth and... Yes. And so I think when we avoid the process of grief, because we don't have to enter into it... Mm -hmm. We avoid the opportunity to glean the, the truth and the wisdom that's there for us. Yeah. And we also miss out on the opportunity to connect emotionally right. with other people in that time. And wouldn't you say that we still carry all of that in our body and it comes out in unhealthy ways? I've, you know what I mean? It's not like you can just not have pain. Yes. Well, what I've noticed about people who avoid the grief process is that they tend to have more of a surface existence. Wow. That, um, you know, when, you, when you're when you in pain, 
their response to you is also very surfacey. Wow. You know, just cliches. Yes. And, um, so I think when you enter into your pain, it gives you more empathy for other mm. people. Compassion. And compassion, yes. And, and you're think, saying relational connection, that when you don't yes. grieve, you miss out on depth of relationship with other people because you kind of have to Definitely. grieve with other people. Yeah, and if you just think about, you know, the times for me that have been very sacred have been times of shared tears with people, right? shared pain, that really pain has an ability to really bond us. Yes. And yeah, I think... Um, it really grief is an opportunity. Hmm. So one thing I was thinking about that even though there's a lot of different feelings when it comes to grief, I thought it would be helpful to focus on one particular feeling that I think is difficult for people is sadness. Yes. And what you're saying that isn't we equate grief and sadness, but actually sadness is just one facet yes. of grief. Mm-hmm. Of the inc- grief process. That can include lots of things. Denial, yes. anger, bargaining, mm-hmm. frenetic activity, anxiety. But yes. sadness is, I think, it's what most of us associate with grief. Yes, definitely. And sadness is a vulnerable feeling, hmm. and it's similar to shame. Wow. And when you think about shame, um, sadness is an opportunity to invite people in and deepen intimacy. And that's a similar, um, you know, helpful thing to do is shame. How is sadness similar? To, connect the dots for me. How is sadness similar to shame? Um, so when we feel shame, um, the way t- to deal with it is to acknowledge it. Yes. And I think uh, one of the most helpful things is to have someone who can empathize with you. Yes, absolutely. Right? Because you're just feeling really bad about who you are. Yes. And so we can get really stuck there. And so you're inviting someone into this place that you feel really horrible about yourself. Right. And it's so vulnerable. And um, so it's the very thing that we don't want to do. <laughs> it's the very thing that we need to do. Yes. And I think that's the same thing with sadness. Okay. Right? They both are things that we want to avoid. Yes. But it's the very thing that can really draw us close yes. in our relationships. Because hmm. we don't want to go there. We just want to turn on Netflix or do another hour at the office or yeah. take care of our kids or whatever. Not all bad things, but mm-hmm. when we don't go there, we miss out on the healing and we miss out on relationship. Yes, we definitely miss out on the healing and, yeah, that the opportunity to connect. You have that line, sadness is like a wise sage that forces us to slow down, be present, and reflect. Yes. Yeah, I, I think... Um, yeah, sadness can really be like um, the Holy Spirit in the sense that hmm. it has just wisdom to offer. Wow. It's like lady wisdom. Yeah. Uh, the psychologist um, Mary Lamia says that sadness can help you to remember and accept reality, to achieve insight that can realign your goals, alert you to be cautious before making decisions, and create an opportunity for you to observe yourself. Hmm. Yeah, it really does slow us down mm-hmm. and get us to think deeply about our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, this researcher, Joseph um, Forgas, I'm not sure how to say his last name, he had a clinical study and um, he saw that people who experienced sadness had improved attention to detail clearer memories, and less bias. They were better at reading other people's thoughts and emotions and making accurate assessments about people and situations. Wow. Gosh. That's amazing. I mean, it doesn't doesn't surprise me just because there's so much just, again, in the New Testament about suffering and sadness and how they have the potential to form us into more loving and Christ-like people. Thinking of James 1 or Romans 5. I mean, there's so many examples, but, you know, consider pure joy when you face trials of all, many kinds. You know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, hope. Like, it brings this maturity to you. Yeah, and that Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Oh, yeah, I mean, Jesus was sad. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, again, it's Good Friday. This is what we remember on Good Friday is that Jesus was sad and he slowed down. I mean, I I just been thinking a lot about the garden of Gethsemane narrative Mm -hmm. and, you know, Jesus there 
processing his emotions of sadness with God mm-hmm. and, you know, sweating great drops of tears, which mm-hmm. is a, there's a name for that medical effect of just like overarching body grief mm-hmm. coming out of your pores, you know, wow. and it's from extreme heartbreak, you know, wow. and him just, I'm, my soul is deeply troubled is his line in Matthew. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jesus is a, as a, penultimate example and Jesus is also joyful and happy and celebratory he's both and a man of yes. sorrows and acquainted with grief and anointed with the oil of joy both mm-hmm. of those prophecies about Jesus came to pass but Jesus really I think is a great example in that he slowed down in the garden and it's so interesting he slowed down he went to his emotions he prayed and he wanted his closest friends with him yeah and there seems like there's some great like just yeah kind of a template in Jesus oh, on Good Friday for that's that's kind of how you slow down, you meet God in your emotional pain, you process it in prayer, and you have your closest friends with you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. So one of the ways, you know, if you're wondering if you're sad mm-hmm. is to notice how it shows up in your body. Right. And Jesus was a body, right. um, embodied. And just noticing that your body, is, you're just going to feel more tired and slowed down. Mm-hmm. That's... You're going to feel physically and mostly emotionally exhausted. Um, our body's energy is directed towards mental energy. Okay. And so... Because it's trying to process and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, some of us can feel tightness in our throat or chest, and we might notice changes in our sleep and appetite, mm-hmm. either more or less. Yeah. Our sexuality yes. is affected. yes. And then, of course, tears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Lots of tears right yes. now, I think, around the world. Yes. Um, so when we feel alone in our sadness and our grief, pain, and tears, it can increase our suffering. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really comforting from Scripture is that God promises that we're never alone in our pain and that God offers presence and Jesus off- offers empathy. Yeah. God offers presence and Jesus offers empathy. Uh, that reminds me of Hebrews, you know what I mean, where the writer of Hebrews makes such a big deal about how Jesus, be- God became human in Jesus in order to empathize with our fragility, our mortality, disease, yes. death, sin, temptation. And he, he, he was in all points tempted as we were, yet without sin is the line. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a God. Where he's not the, you know, the people that give you the cliche and are aloof and are shallow and tell you to buck up. That's not Jesus. Yeah. Jesus knows what it's like to face death. And definitely. Pain. Definitely. And that when you think of the grief process, you can think of it as a process of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. That the old is gone and that mm. we're waiting on God to resurrect a new way of life. Yes. And that's what Jesus showed us. And that's what I love about, you know, the good. There's in the Christian tradition, there's Good Friday and then there's Easter Sunday. But what a lot of people, for some reason, really don't emphasize is Holy Saturday. Mm, and, yeah. you know, Good Friday is the day we get in touch with our grief and our mm-hmm. pain and our suffering and our mortality in Jesus. And Easter is the day we get in touch with, like, hope and resurrection and death won't stop us and, like, God will do new things out of all of this. Yeah. But Holy Saturday is where a lot of us live. Yes, in the waiting. In the waiting, in the quiet, in the silence of God. In the where is God right now? Mm-hmm. It's Holy Sabbath was a sa- Holy Saturday is a Sabbath. Yeah, and so, but it's not a Sabbath of celebration. It's a Sabbath of waiting and trust and peace and quiet. And nothing is written about Holy Saturday because it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And so, it's interesting. We're all at you know. I like to think of almost the emotional process through the lens of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter. I like that. You know, there are seasons and there are days and weeks and months where we're in a Good Friday kind of season. We're just grieving or just so like just sweating great drops of tears and in pain. Then there are Holy Saturday seasons, which mm-hmm. I think is what this spring is for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Just waiting. We yes. don't know what will happen. We know this potential. We know God can do anything. And right now we're waiting in the quiet and in the silence. Yeah. And then there's Easter. There's a, the, the, you know, the full flowering of spring, the hope, the, yes. yes, this is what God's done and God's alive. Yes. It, it made me think of the physical landmark. Um, I think that reflects this is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Yeah. And how uh, the Wailing Wall is also called the Wall of Tears. And it's in the Old City Walls. 
and that the stones are thought to be the last of the remnant of Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. And it's a physical place to acknowledge the pain of unfulfilled longings. Yeah. So people take you know time to write down um, requests to God on a little piece of paper. It's very quiet and silent. Yes. And they you know shove it in the crevices. Yeah, I've been there. It's just it's, of the wall. I mean, we've all seen pictures, but it's really stunning. Yes, it's just such. You can feel the heaviness. Yes. Like the weightiness, and at the same time, it's interesting. When I was there, I don't remember any signs saying like "don't talk" or anything. But mm-hmm. it's just kind of like you intuitively hush yourself when you're there. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if Definitely. you're watching, others are wailing, but you're just there's like this weird combination of wailing and silence. Yes, and I feel like that wall is such a great physical um, remembrance for us of destruction mm-hmm. and also the hope of the temple being rebuilt. Wow. Yeah, it is an evocative physical symbol. But we don't have something, we don't have a wailing wall in America or even in the Christian tradition in the same Mm -hmm. way. We have, I think, the Lord's Supper, which in some ways is that for us. So maybe to end, would you walk us through some, I think what you call, you know, strategies for dealing with sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, with trauma and the grief process, yeah. all those things. And I don't want to get into my American, like, tell me what to do, practical. <laughs> but there are things that we can do, I think, to cooperate with our body and with the Holy Spirit and with the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe let's let's move into some of that to end. Okay. Well, just to start off, I think, you know, since we've, we're recognizing this is a big trauma, like 9-11, um, mm-hmm. We can learn from what's happened, what happened to help survivors of that of 9-11. Right. So this um, survey that was done by Dr. Spencer Eth, he surveyed 225 people who escaped the Twin Towers on 9-11. Wow. And he asked them, what were your top, what were the top three, what helped you? I think it was more general. What helped yeah. you? And what he found um, that were the top three healing modalities to help people heal was yoga, acupuncture, and massage. So interesting. You would think therapy, you would think really all body things. Yes, all body things. And so, you know, this is going to be look different for shelter in place. (laughs) So I was thinking, how do I, you know, translate that? Um, You know, we can still do yoga at home. There's no way to do massage with social distancing. That's a little... Well, I think like (laughs) in our family... Well, with your spouse. Yeah, if you have a spouse. John and I massage each other, but we also massage our kids. Oh, don't tell my wife this. I am an anti-massage person and my wife loves them. So please, T, if you're listening, just fast forward this part. Yeah. So massage is therapeutic, John Mark. Yes, I know. I've read the data. So... um, I th- another thing is, you know, looking up on YouTube, there's acupre- acupuncture or acupressure. Sorry, since we can't do acupuncture. I was going to say, what? Self-acupuncture. <laughs> that is, I'm not doing that. I don't yeah. care. Like, I'm too scared yeah, to give myself go, a haircut, much less acupuncture. Yeah. <laughs> so you can do acupressure. Acupressure. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think you have to kind of adapt since we're at home. Um, so another thing that is helpful that there was research done by James Pennebaker mm-hmm. that he found that writing about trauma can decrease physical illness by 50%. That's unbelievable. 50%. I mean, that's like, in, yeah. I know, just enough about stats to know. That's giant. Yes. And his research is with college students. Mm-hmm. And he's the same uh, same researcher who did that I was referring yes. to earlier. Yeah, on yes. trauma. And he also um, did another research study, and it showed that writing out your deepest thoughts and feelings for 15 to 20 minutes a day, um, that that practice can increase your immune function. Wow. So I thought people would be interested it's interesting. in that. One of my best friends, his dad died unexpectedly about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And we just had this conversation the other day, it just came up in random. And he said, I'm not a journaler. I never journaled before, mm-hmm. and I don't journal now. Yeah. But he said that was the most healing thing for me. He said every day, and he said 15 to 20 minutes. Oh. I would sit down, and I'd write down how I feel. And he's a um, real, similar to your husband, like real kind of cerebral. Mm-hmm. You know, we all make, we all tease him. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. doesn't feel anything. Yeah. He's like the Spock kind of. Yes. And for him, that was the most, that was more healing, I think he said, than anything, was just writing out. 
yes. that pain and trauma and writing about his dad. and Yeah, I think for know. cerebral people, they're like journaling. That's fluffy stuff. Yes. Um, but I think to hear that it actually affects our physical health, our immune system, yep. that getting it out of your head Yes. It's getting all of those thoughts. So it did And it is embodied. I've read some weird, I don't understand the neuroscience, but there's something about actually writing with your hand. Yeah, not typing. You're not supposed to type it. You're supposed to actually write with your hand. There's something yes. there that I'm not smart enough to explain much or understand much less explain. <laughs> but it is actually something about writing. Yeah. Yeah. So writing that out um, can really be helpful during this time. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's one thing, mm-hmm. you know, is is writing things. I'm clearly hearing from you relationships. Yes. Like we need to be in relationship more than ever. Yes. Then the second one there is kind of writing things, writing out your pain, journaling in the morning or at night or whatever. What else? Uh, well, I think sometimes it's helpful to have a mantra. Hmm. And um, Louis Giglio, um, I heard him talk about Galatians 2.20 that verse that says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Mm-hmm. And he um, taught me that you can just breathe in the mantra, I can't, and then breathe out, Jesus, you can. Oh, that's great. And I think it's such a beautiful mantra because right now all of us are hitting our limits. Yes. We're noticing, we're impatient. I don't like homeschooling, Um, (laughs) that I think it's just helpful to have that breathing and that um, just um, truth to meditate on, that it's not up to us, that we can allow and depend on Christ to live through us. Yeah. You know, I've been reading through 2 Corinthians this week, and I just was so blessed about how Paul is writing about his suffering And he has this line, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, that's one of the best things in my spiritual formation that I think God could do through this in my life and many others is wean us off of our self-reliance because we come to the limit of our emotional capacity and or of a spiritual capacity or whatever. And really put us into a place of reliance on God, which is, that's freedom and power. Definitely. And that's so countercultural. Yes. Right? Americans, we're all about I can. All about self-reliance. I will. Self-reliance is not a pejorative in our culture. It's a virtue. I literally just read a book on how to increase self-reliance in your children. Most of it is like, oh yeah, sure. But then some of it I'm like, no, that's that's just hyper-individualism, autonomy, life without God. And it's not, and it doesn't work. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, so being able to acknowledge acknowledge that. Okay. So, and then there's things that I love because you mentioned in your sermon. So just slowing down, <laughs> noticing the sadness, yeah, and just allowing it to well up and move through you. Yeah. And then nurturing your thought life. So we talked about just negative thoughts, and they can hit yeah. us when we're most vulnerable. Dirty pain, you called it, or whatever. Yes, the yeah. dirty pain. The lies that we believe, things we think and ruminate about. Yes. So we're trying to really meditate on thoughts of gratitude, good memories, and then truths from scripture. Yes. It's interesting. I just feel I'm reading more scripture than ever right now. It just is so life-giving for me right now. Mm -hmm. I feel like scripture just comes alive in times of desperation because you're filling your mind with truth and reality and comfort Mm -hmm. and solidarity. And the Psalms, I mean, two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. You know, and so just reading through that, giving voice to my feelings and my soul, it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, One statement that's helpful when you're dealing with trauma is I'm having a normal response to an abnormal situation. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> a normal response to an abnormal situation. That yeah. is great. We should that we should make that our new one of our mantras. <laughs> yeah. It's not as good as the Jesus you can, but I'm having a normal response to an abnormal situation. This is yeah. an abnormal situation. It is. It's completely abnormal. And then um, taking care of your body and nurturing your body. So I think this is not a time for trying to improve your body and yes. doing rigorous workouts. I'm going to get flat abs. Yes, that type of thing. I'm 39. I mean, They've yet to happen. <laughs> I, it's been a lifelong <laughs> failed pursuit. Yeah, so doing things that are more gentle exercises, yes. um, like yoga or you know, just 
more gentle walking or running. A lot of people are walking right now. Yeah. yeah that getting that fresh air. does something. Oh, yep. definitely. Yes. And, um, and then, you know, things that you've said about, you know, limiting the things we put in our body. So sugar, processed food, alcohol, caffeine. Yeah. That really, it's not because we're trying to improve our body, but we're actually trying to be kind to our body. Yeah, be gentle with it. Yeah, it's working really hard right now to try to, you know, get some grounding. Yeah, you know, this is way over my pay grade. I was with this, like, it's a long story, but this, like, super genius psychologist guy in Scotland recently, and I was learning from him about bioenergetics and the role of the body in psychological healing. And, you know, all sorts of new science is basically saying, we all know that the body heals itself. Like, uh-huh. it, you know what I mean? It, you, you cut yourself. It wants to, yeah. It wants to heal itself. Yeah. And, but his thesis is that actually it can, it can participate in the healing of our emotions and our memories. And again, mm-hmm. the, the bifurcation of mind and body doesn't really match science at all or theology. You know what I mean? In the sense that your your mind is, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm a believer in a mind that controls your brain, but your nervous system is part of your body. Yes. You know, your neurons are a part of your body. Definitely. And so there there is a role. So his whole, we did some amazing things together. It's a whole other podcast, but <laughs> about like he was showing me how to let my body heal my emotional pain. Yes. By just slowing down and giving attention to the part of the body that hurts and letting it do its thing and yes. relaxing into it. It's just just stunning yeah. the power of the way God created our bodies yeah. to participate in our healing. Yeah, that our body naturally wants to heal itself. Yes. So, you know, we have white blood cells, but our bodies get overwhelmed sometimes. Right. And that's when, you know, we need interventions. Yes. Yeah. And be gentle with our body. And mm-hmm. yeah, mm, so well said. Anything <sighs> yeah. else before we um, end? So, I think just taking care of your relationships. Mm hmm. I, I thought we could add um, some notes for people because there's yes. just a lot of Put all this in helpful the show notes. things. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but connecting with people, um, being a listening ear for people who are grieving, and then um, I think music is really powerful. I mm. noticed on the daily for Bridgetown. Yeah, it was just so nice to hear music, and I was just yes. remembering music is such an amazing way to express our feelings. Mm-hmm. Just like in our spirit, at our soul, it just is able to communicate so much that we, you know, are so limited in our words. So I think music can really be therapy for us. Um, And it can also be just a great source of comfort. Right. I did think of this 90s uh, Christian song this morning when I was thinking about, you know what, songs have given me comfort. You had me at 90s Christian. <laughs> I was yeah. a Christian in the 90s. I played in bands. Yes. I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember Christian music in the 90s. So music is so personal. Yeah. But I think the lyrics of this is so just right on right now. It's from Hebrews 11. It's called Take My Hand um, by the Cry. And the words are, I'm not going to read them all, but um, it starts off with, I know there are times when your dreams turn to dust. You wonder as you cry why it has to hurt so much. Give me all your sadness, and someday you'll know the reason why. With a childlike heart, put your hope in me. Take my hand and walk where I lead. Keep your eyes on me alone. Don't say why were the old days better, just because you're scared of the unknown. Take my hand and walk. Take my walk. <laughs> so I remember that song. I remember uh, Jean-Luc, if you're out there, I we hung years ago. But just reading the lyrics like that were so powerful. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't yes. know what's there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and don't live in the past because yesterday's gone. Yeah. I think that will be the hardest for people. Yes. Is to move forward, to yes. be present, to be able to move forward. Yeah. To wait in Holy Saturday. Mm-hmm, yes. And then to move forward into what's next. And, you know, I think there's so much potential for God to do. That is a great list. Anything else you want to add to your list? Uh, to my list. I think I'll put it in the notes. You put it in the notes. Great. So, I mean, I'm hearing relationships, journaling, a mantra like, I can't, but Jesus, you can. Slowing down and me and your emotions. Nurturing your thought life. Nurturing your body. You know, breathing, I think, was on your list. Music. 
Um, that's just some, and then I think you had one here on the list in the notes, find ways to help other people and be generous. Yes. I love that. You know, I think there's something about kind of getting out of my own head. Definitely. And on to the needs of others. Definitely. It could be a great time, you know, if there's a social distancing, safe, government-approved way to volunteer, Mm -hmm. which there are. We're doing some, actually, in this building right now for AnchorSite and DHS and, you know, just or serving people you know or calling somebody that's lonely and alone. I've been trying to call a couple of my friends that are living alone and just, hey, how you doing? You have the opposite problem to me right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Yeah, it feels like total opposite extremes. (laughs) I am not lonely. Yes. Too many people, too much going on. As a dad of the kids. Yeah. um, But... But yeah, but yeah, and there's something that does something to get me out of myself. Yes. Know? So th- that's a great list. Thank you for that. And again, I, I think that list, that's not how you do grief. Mm-hmm. It's how you let grief do something in you and through you. Let patience have its perfect work, as James 1 says. How you follow Jesus' example at the Garden of Gethsemane and you slow down and you meet your emotions and you meet God in your emotions and you. And you, and you meet your friends and your community in it. And I think those are just some great strategies or really just ways to cooperate mm-hmm. with God as we grieve. Yes, and we can be sad and be hopeful. Yes. Not exclusive. As sorrowful, but always rejoicing, like Paul said. Yes, or and that's he, the wailing wall, I think, too, right? Yes. It is that picture of both sadness, brokenness, destruction, and yet hope. And hope. Of what to come, of yes. what's to come. Again, it's Paul's line: "We grieve, but not as those who have no hope." Yes, because that's, I think, the danger. Yeah, is when we lose hope. And I think I hesitate to say this because it could be misinterpreted. But I was, we were grocery shopping the other day, which is an experience right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and we were chatting to the checker, and the checker uh, was a believer oh. from another great church in town, and. You know, it's interesting to be a checker right now. It's yeah. like similar how grocery checkers became like doctors. They're like yeah. the front lines, people saving us, you yeah. know? And he had this interesting aside. He just said, you know, all of the Christians I know are almost completely at peace. Mm. And then I started thinking about, man, so many of the Christians I know really are at peace. Mm. And if you're a Christian and you're not at peace, don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. I hesitate to say it. But then he said, pretty much every single person who comes in here that isn't a Christian mm. seems to be freaking out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and that wasn't a moral judgment. It doesn't mean the Christians are better than, but there is. But he said, and then he immediately connected to the worldview. He said, they have no hope. Yeah. Yes. And I, I feel like that metaphor that you talked about, about the mountain yeah. And that emotions From being Martin like Lard. the changing yes. weather. Mm-hmm. That I do the top feel of the mountain, like. But this is deeper part of you that's bedrock. Yes. Yeah. That really, I think God allows us to ground ourselves and gives us that solid foundation. Yes. Ah, oh, God is that. God is that ground of being for us, that anchor, that refuge. I read that in, in the Psalms this morning. You know, I know shelter in place is like not the proper language, but I actually love that language because shelter and refuge are mm. common metaphors for God in the yes. Psalms. And they're emotional language. It's a metaphor. Yeah. So God's not literally like a castle that you go into. Yeah. But he's like an emotional castle, an emotional shelter or refuge that we that we hide in and we feel comfort and protection from, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so, man, I think the need for us to move toward refuge and shelter in God is greater now than ever before. Definitely. Well, thank you, Tristan. We're so grateful for the work that you do one-on-one with so many in our church and beyond. And um, for your husband, who's not here right now, but thank you, John. We love and respect you so much. And um, thank you so much for this time. Thank you. Love to all of you and uh, look forward to Easter Sunday with you. <laughs>